From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. You can tell an awful lot about any society just from the language of recipes. You can tell who's doing the cooking, how knowledgeable they are, what kind of ingredients are in the culture. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Ruth Reichel. Now, Ruth is an author who needs perhaps no introduction. She's a seasoned and very storied cookbook author, food writer, and editor, who was the restaurant editor and food critic at the Los Angeles Times before moving to New York City, her hometown, to become restaurant critic for the New York Times, and ultimately taking on one of her most visible roles as editor of Gourmet Magazine in its last 10 years of existence. Now, Ruth has received four James Beard Awards, and she is the author of nearly a dozen in books, including a couple cookbooks and several memoirs, such as her first memoir, Tender at the Bone, Growing Up at the Table, and Garlic and Sapphires, The Secret Life of a Critic in Disguise. She penned her second cookbook, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life, following the abrupt closure of Gourmet Magazine while she was at the helm, and is here to talk about her latest work, another memoir, Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Memoir. In this week's show, we're talking with Ruth about her time at Gourmet Magazine, about the cookbooks that have influenced her and cookbook authors she's watching today, and of course, playing a little game at the end. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. Let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Ruth Reichel joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Ruth. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. I'm very happy to be here. What a great kitchen. Yeah, isn't it beautiful, our, our recording space in the Civic Kitchen? Um, we're very glad to host you here, uh, and we're here to talk about your new book, among your other works, Save Me the Plums. But I actually want to go back a little bit, since we're a show on cookbooks, and start with the first cookbook you wrote, um, which I think is so fascinating, because you went to the University of Michigan, you got a master's in art history, I think you sort of knew food was an interest of yours, but then the first thing you do right out of college, I think, one of the like very first things you do is write a cookbook, right? Well, it wasn't the first thing. The first thing I did was try and get a job (laughs) at a museum. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, fresh out of, you know, graduate school, you know, I walk into the Museum of Modern Art and I literally thought that they would say, you know, oh yeah, we're looking for a new curator of contemporary culture. Right. And in fact, all anyone said to me is how fast can you type? Okay. And the first job I was offered was a job in the PR department of the Museum of Contemporary Crafts, and I didn't want to do PR. And I ended up having a series of jobs that I really hated. Meanwhile, uh, my husband and I are sharing a loft with a friend on the Lower East Side, and it was a great cooking, a great food place. I uh-huh. mean, you know, there was Chinatown, Little Italy was still a really vibrant community, the Jewish Lower East Side still existed, and... I sort of wandered around this great neighborhood, you know, collecting ingredients, talking to all these old people who, you know, in 1970 were very happy to have a young person interested in their ingredients. Sure. And, um, and I would come home and cook these huge meals for all our friends. Okay. And one day, one of my friends said, you're such a good cook. You ought to write a cookbook. Yeah. Well, today that would be ridiculous, right? (laughs) But I grew up in publishing. My father was a book designer. Mm -hmm. And so I spent one weekend putting together a proposal for 
what was basically kind of a hippie cookbook, you know, with art done by all my friends. And I took this one chapter and an outline for the book into an editor I really liked. And I said, would you tell me what I could do with this book? And she called me a week later and said, we'll publish it. (laughs) Wow. You know, there was none, you know, can you cook? Who's tested your recipes? Where do the recipes come from? I mean, this is before the cookbook revolution. This is 1971. Okay. And their idea was a cookbook by a young person. Maybe that, maybe that'll do well. Sure. And for this book, we actually gave them camera ready art. I mean, we pasted it up ourselves. I mean, it was a real home done job in our little Lower East Side loft. Yeah. And, you know, I had 10 friends do the art for it and the book came out and people then thought I was a food writer, Yeah, which had never occurred to me that I could be a food writer. So you sort of wrote this cookbook and made yourself a food writer and then realized, oh, now I'm a food writer. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, I just, I did this book for the fun of it. And because also they gave me enough money to quit my job. The advance was a fortune to me. And I did nothing for a year but write this book. And I loved it. I loved the writing. I loved the creating the recipes. And I wish someone had told me that mmm was not a great title for a book. I kind of love it. (laughs) Well, it turned out that people were embarrassed to go into a bookstore and say, do you have mmm? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I understand. Um, But, um, you know, now, 50 years later, the book is uh, very hard to find. And if you can find one, it's worth a lot of money. Yeah. Um, It's interesting to me when I look at the book. I mean, the voice is the same voice I still have. Really? I mean, the book I wrote, My Kitchen Year, the my next cookbook. Right, which came many years later. Which is only 40-some years later. It's not that different um, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me how much I still wrote the same, thought about the same things, and wish I could have had you know, more art in the new book. Right. (laughs) Does writing come easy to you? Has it always been an easy process for you? Or was it something you sort of had to learn how to do well? Writing is never easy. I hate writing. That's what I was hoping to hear. (laughs) I hate writing. But I love having written. Okay. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a drug. You know, the days when it goes well are so exhilarating that you keep doing it, waiting for those moments. That said, writing this last cookbook, My Kitchen Year, was the easiest writing I've ever done. Yeah. And it, it came very, uh, fluidly. No, no other book has ever been that easy to do. Really? Yeah. Easier than Save Me by the Plums, too. Oh. My Kitchen Year just flowed. My Kitchen Year went in not very edited. This book, my editor really tortured me into Save Me the Plums. Okay. Um, I must have rewritten this book six times. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. So My Kitchen Year then is the second cookbook you wrote, which is interesting, I think, for me, because you wrote so much in between. Yes. Um, many memoirs and some other, obviously, other work as well. Um, but My Kitchen Year for listeners is the cookbook that you wrote a few years after Gourmet Magazine was... You use the term murdered. Yes. Um, so you were the editor of Gourmet Magazine, the final editor of Gourmet Magazine for its last 10 years. And then all of a sudden it's, it's done. It's, it's over. swept out from under you. Yes. And you channeled that energy into a cookbook. How soon did that realization occur for you that like, that's what I should do? 
Well, I started to write a novel. I had always said if okay. I didn't have a day job, I would write a novel. Right. But the truth is, I was so devastated that I found writing really hard, and yeah. I kept going into the kitchen. And so for that first year after the magazine closed, I really found solace in the kitchen, and I was tweeting a lot about what I was cooking, and I felt like there was a community of cooks that had sort of gathered around me. I mean, there I was in my little house on top of a hill in rural New York, and but communicating with all of these other cooks and cooking every day and and thinking, I should be writing, I should be writing, but cooking. Yeah. And we still have these reunions, these gourmet reunions sure. where we all get together. And one day, I mean, it was so much like writing the first cookbook. It's a little comical, but okay. we were sitting in this very cheap and cheerful restaurant that we tend to go to for these reunions. Okay. And um, one of my former editors said to me, he just looked over at me and he said, boy, it must be really hard for you going to cheap restaurants after years of, you know, being a restaurant critic and then being at gourmet. And he's, you know, when was the last time you paid for restaurants? And I realized it had been, I'd had an expense account since 1978. Right. Suddenly I didn't have one anymore. And he said, don't you miss fancy restaurants? And I said, no, I have loved cooking. I'm getting so much pleasure in the kitchen. I had sort of forgotten that I wasn't going to restaurants anymore. And he said, you know, you've always said that your mission in life was to get people cooking. Don't you think you should write a cookbook about this process and how you're healing yourself in the kitchen? And, you know, I went home and called my agent and said, I think I want to write a cookbook before I do the novel, because I think that I really have something to offer to people about how wonderful it is to be in the kitchen. And, um, you know, for me, it's all about mindfulness and about mm -hmm. paying attention when you're cooking and, you know, the joy of the sights and the sounds. And I mean, you know, for me, the best example of what you get in the kitchen is a peach. Mm, yeah. When you peel a peach, it's like you're finding a sunset and you never see that color that's right under the skin. Uh, you don't see it if you bite into it because it's hidden. You don't see it if you slice it. But when you peel it, there is this gift. And almost everything in the kitchen is like that. And so that's, that's sort of what the book is about, is about the joy of being in the kitchen. Yeah. And it, and my kitchen year, it's a very personal cookbook and it's, it's a memoir in many ways too, as much as it is a cookbook. And you talk a lot about the family that you built at Gourmet, your team at Gourmet and that family dynamic that really existed at the magazine. I'm sure that was a factor for you as you were channeling your energy into this cookbook, a motivator for you rather. Was there something broader though too, like the, the magnitude of gourmet being shuttered overnight? Was that a motivating factor for you as well in addition to like the personal aspects? Well, it was, but it was also, you know, one of the great things about a magazine, there's so many great things about a magazine, it's the most collaborative work you can do. Yeah. And, and there's a joy in that. And so suddenly I'm alone, which, you know, which is what writers do. But it was, it was that difference between having this group of people every day working on something, trying to make everything better and, and, you know, the excitement of producing something as a group. But, you know, the, the other thing is, I, I mean, I truly believe that cooking is important and that um, we as a nation are losing that and that we as food journalists have done a terrible thing to the public. 
we have made people think that they need to be chefs, that they need to cook like chefs. Uh huh. And I don't think home cooks should ever think that they need to think of themselves as chefs. And I think we need to be reminded that cooking is about the journey, not the result. Yeah. And that we pay too much attention to, is it a great meal? Instead of, did I have a wonderful time cooking this meal? And is something great happening at the table around this meal? As opposed to, you know, is this the best grilled cheese sandwich you ever had in your life? Sure. The ultimate. <laughs> um, do you think we're on a backswing in that way, though? I think we, you say food journalists have maybe sort of pushed people to want to be chefs in their home kitchens. But then we've also, I think, sort of seen this surge of cookbooks in the past few years that are focused more on home cooking and enabling home cooks to feel confident in the kitchen. You know, obviously, Samin, no strat, salt, fat, acid, heat is sort of the preeminent cookbook of our, our past year or so, but Julia Tertian, other folks are really writing for home cooks. Are we moving in that direction? I think we're doing both. Okay. I mean, I, I think we're still producing aspirational cookbooks that sort of demand that you be a chef in your own kitchen. And, you know, I'm really grateful to Samin for what she's doing. And, you know, Julia is a national treasure. And I mean, I think it's significant that a lot of the people who are producing these really useful cookbooks um, that really do help you in the kitchen tend to be younger. Are there other cookbook authors that you're paying attention to now? There are a bunch of wonderful new cookbooks. Um, I really like Diana Henry's How to Eat a Peach. Yeah. I also love that it's a tactile cover. Isn't that that so fun? (laughs) And um, Cal Paternell's Almonds, anchovies, and pancetta, which I mean, I kind of love. It says a vegetarian cookbook, kind of. <laughs> right. Although it isn't. I mean, one third of those <laughs> ingredients is pancetta. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, right. and anchovies. Right, right. Um, Pescatarian. Yasmin Khan's Zaitun is, is just a lovely book and probably needed right now. It's uh, recipes from the Palestinian kitchen. Yeah. Um, I love Anissa Halou's new book. Uh, right. Feast. Feast, which yeah. again, I mean, th- this is food we, we should know more about, I think. Right. It's food of the Islamic yeah. world is for folks who don't know. And, um, a book by a local author that I find myself using more and more these days. Okay. Is Nilafar Ichapuria's From My, uh, Parsi Kitchen. Yeah. And now that is food that people really don't know very much about, but it's a wonderful cookbook. Yeah. Kenji's book, I think uh, is, is it's, it's in a different class, but and that's the food lab. That's the food lab. But, um, I kind of love that cookbook because uh, yeah. it gives you, um, alternative suggestions for how to cook and it makes you think about maybe you should be doing this another way, which right. is, which is really great. Right. So you, I think, um, had a reputation for really, uh, when you were at the helm of gourmet, helping push the conversation in a lot of ways and not being afraid to sort of push some boundaries. You know, you, uh, the thing that always sort of comes to mind for me was David Foster Wallace's essay, Consider the Lobster. You also, speaking of cookbook authors, published this I think previously undiscovered essay from Edna Lewis, who of course penned one of, I think the best cookbooks of all time. I couldn't agree more. And we were so lucky to find that there had been this unpublished essay. And, yeah. and you built a whole issue around it, we right? Did. Yeah. And it, that was so much fun. Um, Jane Lear 
who was an editor at the magazine, someone told her that there was this, and, and she just said, let's buy it sight unseen. Yeah. And it turned out to be a very poetic essay on what is Southern. And, and we built the, I'm a, it's an issue I'm really proud of. One of the things we did at the magazine, when, it, when I went to the magazine, I said, you know, if what you want is what Gourmet has always done, I'm not the person for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that food is much more than recipes and restaurants and fancy vacations. Yeah. And this is a moment in American food where we need to start talking about race and gender and politics and sociology and science. And I want to get the best literary people and I want to go to authors who've never thought about food as their subject and say, write me essays about food. So we had, you know, Juno Diaz wrote for us and, you know, Jane Smiley and Julian Barnes and Ann Patchett and, you know, people who aren't people you think of as food writers and Pat Conroy and, and they all wrote, Chimamanda Adichie wrote a great feminist essay for us that is extraordinary. And we made that all a mix of the magazine. And we said, you know, we think, I mean, you know, what you do as a magazine editor is produce the magazine you want to read. Mm-hmm. And you know what, to me, what a great magazine is, is not, you don't give p- readers what they want. You give them what they didn't know they wanted. Yeah. And we tried very hard to do that and to push the envelope visually. I mean, we got, instead of using the same people that everybody, I mean, there were like 10 food photographers that everyone was using. And we started going to photographers who had never done food and saying, you know, will you shoot these pieces? We got people to news photographers to shoot things really quickly. So you get kind of immediacy and it was so much fun. It was so much fun. It it sounds like so much fun just reading your memoirs and in particular, Save Me the Plums. It just sounds like as a former journalist myself, what a fun, fun job. Uh, what do you think your legacy was of those 10 years you helmed Gourmet Magazine? Well, I mean, my, my brief when I went there was to try and bring in younger readers. Okay. And I think we didn't, we took the magazine from something that belonged to a very elite group of mostly wealthy, mostly white, older readers, and got a group of young people who started thinking about food in a different way and whose interests were validated by the magazine. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the other great things is when, once we created Gourmet.com, we were able to bring a lot of young writers in people who didn't have clips, but who were interested in, I mean, Tedril Rao wrote for us at right. gourmet.com. And, and she's now the, I, the restaurant critic of the LA times. No, of, she's the, of the New York times, the New York based, times in <laughs> based in LA. She's the West coast. That's right. Um, and a beautiful writer. Yes. And, you know, I called this book, save me the plums because it, it references a poem by William Carlos Williams. Sure. But, William Carlos, it, it, it's more than just that for me. William Carlos Williams was a physician who worked with poor people, a man who really thought about being an ethical human being, who was also a poet, a friend of Ezra Pound and Hemingway and all those people who went to Europe to, you know, be writers. Right. And, um, for me, he exemplifies everything that I wanted Gourmet to be, which was, practical, ethical, inspirational, literary, 
And so, you know, I, he did write my favorite poem of all times, which is it's a great poem, which is about plums. Yes. Um, but he also very much references what I wanted the magazine to be. Yeah. And this is 10 years now since gourmet ceased to exist it this is. year. Yes. What do you think is the gourmet of today? Does it exist? Has it ever existed? Gourmet obviously left a hole in um, the food media scene. I don't think that there is a magazine like that today. Yeah. But of course, if gourmet existed, it wouldn't be the same magazine sure. today right. either. And, you know, one of the things that's happened, two things have happened in food journalism. And one is that mainstream publications who never considered food before have you know, people dedicated to writing about food issues. So you've got Ted Genoways in the Atlantic yeah. and um, Mark Arex, who writes all over the place. I mean, really, you know, really good investigative writers tackling food issues. You have the New Yorker writing really wonderful, thoughtful pieces. Right. Um, you know, journalists like Helen Rosner on, on a regular basis. Yeah, she's great. In the New Yorker, you know, bringing up really weighty issues so it it has moved away from just food publications to general publications. Newspapers are dealing with food in ways that they just never did before. Right. At the same time, you've got this sort of evolution of digital publications. So, I mean, to me, a, a publication like Eater, which started out as stupid clip, clickbait, <laughs> right. really, you know, now does really fantastic stuff. Yeah. I mean, thoughtful, long form journalism. I'm really, um, they're being as provocative as they can be. And, you know, everything, they think of everything that you can possibly think about food as fodder for them. So it's a very interesting time in food journalism. And you alluded to this a little bit, but I think there's also been a shift in sort of the American consciousness around food in that you don't hear people walking around in 2019 claiming wholeheartedly that food is not political or that the way we eat and the way that agriculture works and all of these components is not political. I feel like this isn't a question. I think there's just so many young writers, young food writers who think you really helped push the conversation in that way during your time at Gourmet. I mean, I know you did a issue, I think, on Latin America and saw some pushback. Yeah, a lot of time. pushback, yes. Because um, people said it shouldn't be political, is that right? Yes, and some there was reason. not one political word in there, sure. but it was proof that food is political and yeah. just, you know, writing about the difference between the food of El Salvador and the food of Guatemala in the minds of some Americans was political. Yeah. Um and I hope that we started that conversation and pushed it. And I'll tell you that for me one of the huge differences is in 2006, I was asked to speak to the convention that newspaper food editors have. They, they okay. meet once a year. Sure. And I got up and gave this impassioned plea for them to please think about food. And I told them about the devastation of the oceans and confinement animal facilities and the overuse of antibiotics and the obesity crisis and on and on and on. And they sat there shocked. They didn't know any of those things. They really didn't. And yeah. I got so many requests for that speech that I actually printed it up and, you know, we just, um, sent it out. You know, people would, you know, say, I, I need that speech. And five years later, you couldn't give that speech because everybody knew those things. Right. And that's how much things changed, how fast 
And I hope that gourmet was part of that change. Yeah, I think so. I know your mother wasn't a great cook. That would be putting it mildly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but did you grow up with cookbooks? I know there's a story of how you first sort of stumbled upon Gourmet Magazine as a child. Did cookbooks exist in your early life? Um, cookbooks did not really exist much in my early life. My mother had one cookbook. Okay. I think, um, which was a very funny piece of writing. Um, it was a, oh, no, remember there are two. The other thing she had was the I Hate to Cookbook. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I discovered gourmet at the age of eight and, um, it sort of opened that, that scene opens Save Me the Plums where I'm sitting on the floor of a used bookstore and my mm-hmm. father brings me a copy of gourmet. It was a vintage copy. It was printed long before I had been born, but, it opened up a whole new world to me. And after that, my father actually bought me a subscription to Gourmet. As an eight-year-old. As an eight-year-old, which my mother thought was in- ri- <laughs> ridiculous. My, my, you know, my mother was an intellectual. Her, you know, the thing that made her proudest was that she could get dinner on the table in five minutes. Um, and at a certain point, we found the Gourmet cookbook in a used bookstore and my father bought that for me too. So that was the cookbook. And I think like many people of my generation, I literally learned to cook from gourmet. And that original gourmet cookbook, which I think was first printed in 1950, has recipes for everything from bears to woodchucks to possum and squirrel and um, pate. uh, But it assumes a certain amount of knowledge. So, you know, a recipe for duck à l'orange in that book begins, you know, steam one duck. Sure. And it tells you how to make the orange sauce. Right. <laughs> Which as an eight-year-old, maybe you, yeah, that was you didn't a have. A little challenging. But, you know, the great thing about learning to cook when you're very young, yeah. it doesn't occur to you that you're going to make a mistake. And everybody, when you know, as an eight-year-old, when you bring dinner to the table, Everyone tells you how brilliant it is, you right. know, because no one's going to tell an eight-year-old, this is really disgusting. <laughs> Hopefully not, yeah. And so, you know, you're encouraged and you keep cooking. And at a certain point, the horrible messes you're making turn out to be delicious. Yeah. Since we're showing cookbooks, there's another story in Save Me by the Plums that just totally captured me, um, which is talking about after Gourmet had ended and your son is working on a school project. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit of, of that story because I love it so much and he wants to do a cookbook. He, yeah. And I was so thrilled. You know, he said that the teacher said, I want you to link all the books we read uh, this year and I want you, you can do anything. You can do an ad, you can do a script, you can do anything, but surprise me. Um, Nick said, I want to do a cookbook. Will you help me? And of course, how could I not have been completely thrilled? But we literally spent, um, it was a long weekend and the two, my, my husband was away working on a piece he was doing and Nick and I pretty much spent the entire weekend locked in the apartment working on this. And I had thought that he, he, was just going to ask me to find recipes. I mean, the books were The Great Gatsby uh-huh. and uh, Huckleberry Finn okay. and The Song of Solomon. Um, and I thought Nick was just going to want me to find appropriate recipes. So recipes from the time of The Great Gatsby sure. and um, from Huckleberry Finn. No, he wanted to invent the recipes. And he did... It, it was it was the most joyful weekend for me because 
I would find a recipe and, um, at one point I wanted to put his whole cookbook into this, uh, oh, to save me the plums, <laughs> but, um, my editor thought it would be better if I paraphrased it. <laughs> okay. But, you know, he, he's, his recipes included, you know, for the great Gatsby, um, a, a pinch of ambition and, and they they were wonderful. And it was like he had found a new way to do food writing. And as a parent, how could that not be wonderful? But when it was done, it was really mad. You know, there, there was a recipe he did for a stolen pie, I think, okay. from, from Huck Finn. And, um, you know, it, it begins, you know, do you dare to, do you dare to pick a peach? And, <laughs> and I said, your teacher is either going to like, flunk you right. and say, are you, are you crazy? Or she's going to, you know, give you an A, but there's nothing in between. There's no middle ground on this. And he said, you know, don't you think it's good to take a chance? You know, one of those great moments you have from your child. Yeah. And to my great delight, his teacher loved it. And she wrote little notes all over it. So, you know, with the, do you dare to pick a peach? She said, hello, Mr. Prufock. <laughs> and, um, it was just, for me, it was just, it was a really joyful moment of motherhood. Yeah. That's wonderful. You open, uh, my kitchen year with this line. To me, recipes are conversations, not lectures. In the context of cookbooks, um, and I actually pulled a couple Elizabeth David books down from our shelf because I know you've said she's a person who you think really writes wonderful cookbooks. What sort of cookbooks do you, what role do you think cookbooks play in our society? And for that matter, recipes. Well, I actually start uh, my kitchen year with talking about how recipes have developed over time. And I think you can tell an awful lot about any society just from the language of recipes. And you can tell who's doing the cooking, how knowledgeable they are, um, what kind of ingredients are in the culture. I printed the first printed recipe in America, which is from the Amelia S- Simmons book, and you couldn't cook from it today. Right. I mean, there, there are, you know, emptins and you're like, what are emptins? <laughs> you know, it, it turns out that they're a byproduct of ale making or cider making and they, okay. they used it for yeast. Okay. Um, but that sort of tells you something about that. And it's, it's three sentences. Right. That you can't cook from. And then, you know, you go into the Julia Child era where Julia is, literally demanding that you come along with her step by step that you that you march along with her i mean yeah. it's like being in a parade sure whereas elizabeth david is to me the best kind of recipe writer where she's giving you very evocatively what the recipe should end up like what it should taste like what it should look like and she's giving you suggestions for how to do it but she's also assuming that you have a certain amount of intelligence and that you're really going to make the recipe your own. Yeah. And that's what I want. I think it doesn't happen much today. I mean, I think most, and certainly at Gourmet, we found that people wanted very precise recipes down to the size of the pot that you're going to use. Right. And I am hoping with my recipes that there's a certain amount of trial and error, you know, that you'll make it and it's delicious, but you think, 
maybe I could make this better or more to my taste if I threw in a little more butter or if I, you know, used a little cardamom in here. And I think it's, you know, it says a lot about both who the recipe writer is and who the intended recipient is. And, um, you know, a lot about you as a person, which cookbooks you choose to cook from. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I just love that line because I think it is such a unique difference in recipes that are more instructional and sort of to borrow your term lectures versus recipes like Elizabeth David's, like maybe Tamar Adler's, like some of these folks who are more like a confident companion in the kitchen who are there with you and guiding you, but really enabling you to do that cooking on your own. And let me add something, which I think, especially in this digital age, cookbooks have a very special place because now that you can go online and Google anything and the recipes online have gotten better and better. Sure. Um, I mean, they used to be recipes for disaster, but now <laughs> pretty much you can find really good recipes online. So if you go to the farmer's market and you find a beautiful apricot, and you want to do something with those apricots and you come home and you Google apricots. That's one thing. Right. Cookbooks are inspirational. They're, you know, if you're going to give a dinner party and, you know, you lie in bed at night and you think, what do I want to cook? Who's coming? And what would they like to eat? And you start flipping through cookbooks, looking for ideas. That's very different. You know, cookbooks continue to sell very well in this digital age. And yeah. I think that's why, because people want to be inspired. And that's what magazines did. They made you look at a dish and say, Oh God, that really sounds delicious. I I want to do that. I want to make that for someone I love. Right. That's a wonderful note to end on. We always end with a little game. So I, I want to propose a game to you and see if you'll uh, okay. <laughs> appease I'm game. me. I'm game. Um, you have a reputation on Twitter for producing sort of beautiful poetic tweets often with food as a component of them. So I've pulled out a, a little deck of cards that's next to you. Um, and you'll see there's some different categories. There's the secret ingredient category, which is sort of more unique ingredients. And then the other three are sort of your pantry staples. Okay. I want to put you to the test and see if you can maybe play a round where you draw a card from each deck. Okay. And see if you can sort of give us an ad lib an tweet, tweet, poetic tweet, you, incorporating some of these foods. Wow, this is a wild deck here. It is. Um, here, my favorite, sea urchin. Ooh, sea urchin, okay. Um, okay, now I'm going to vegetables. Peas, cinnamon. I don't think I want cinnamon with sea urchin. I, I, um, I have to find the right thing yeah. for sea urchin <laughs> here. Oh, chives. Chives will be good okay, for sea urchin. Okay, yeah. And now we get to the protein, but sea urchin, of course, is protein. Shrimp. Okay, so now I have... Sea urchin, chives, shrimp, and peas. Okay. And let's hear okay. our poetic tweet from Ruth Reichel. Sea urchin souffle in the shell, surrounded by a bouquet of peas and chives, with just a little sprinkling of chopped shrimp on top. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh well, thank you so much, Ruth. This was so fun to have you. Um, this was very fun for me. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. 
This week, we've got a recipe for Ruth Reichel's jeweled chocolate cake. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Happy listener, I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.